Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 93, The Wages of Tyranny. So, who here watched the Lord of the Rings films? I personally have to own up to a lifelong, fanatical, and slightly sad passion for all things Tolkien-esque. For example, I have read The Silmarillion. I tried to type up my own version of the Lord of the Rings book from my friend's copy at the age of 10, because my mother wouldn't buy one for me. I got as far as page 50. Anyway, you didn't come here for maudlin memories, so back to the point. If you are a Tolkien fan, I want to remind you about Wormtongue, or Grima. A nasty piece of work, an evil counsellor who gains power over the king and poisons the court, preying on the rest of the court and running the place in an atmosphere of hatred and fear. Well, hello, Hugh Spencer the Younger. Here we have fiction made flesh. Whatever you think of Gaveston, love him or loathe him, he at least didn't really have a lot of interest in power per se. He just wanted to have a party. Dispenser wanted a party, but he wanted the rest too. He wanted it all. And then, when he had it all, he wanted a bit more. So we've already seen how the Dispensers had effectively caused the war with Lancaster through their avarice in Wales. And yet, they'd emerged victorious. So now what was to stop them? Edward is still around, but he's not the ruling monarch, he's just the monarch. If you wanted something done, it was the Dispensers, father and son, that you went to see. If you wanted to see the king, it's the Dispensers you'd need to see. Rather remarkably, if you just happened to be the king's wife, queen, as they're known, then you would now have to have a dispenser in the room with you to see the king. Hence my reference to Wormtongue 
Somehow, the dispensers wormed their way into a position where they effectively controlled the king, lock, stock and barrel, soup to nuts. We need to separate the elder and younger, I guess, to a degree. The father seems to have been a bit more palatable, in that his loyalty to Edward is without doubt. He served him and remained loyal from start to finish. And every so often, he at least had the grace to get cold feet, though in a slightly whiny way. So, when the two of them were banished, he whined that it was all his son's fault. So probably, if the younger hadn't been as he was, the elder would have led a relatively blameless life. Curses on those evil children who lead us astray. So it seems to be the younger that was the driving force here, and Dad comes along for the ride. By 1323, the younger is in control. There are plenty of governmental letters that survive which are sent by dispenser, where he seems to be acting as a chief minister. There are many letters on royal business that are addressed to him rather than the king. The Pope even tried to influence the king through him. Meanwhile, the dispensers spread their influence through a vast network of retainers, administrators and servants. Government was riddled with people who had a double allegiance to the king and the dispensers. As his power grew, he gained the allegiance even of men who'd previously opposed and fought against him, presumably on the if-you-can't-beat-him-join-him principle. And he exploited this ruthlessly at court. But oddly, the one thing he forgot to do was take control of the local levers of power, the sheriffs and all that sort of thing. This was not to be to his advantage when things heated up. After the fall of Lancaster then, the man was unbound and his depredations began, all in the interest of personal nest feathering. Let's take the case of Elizabeth de Clare, one of the daughters who inherited the de Clare estate. She married Roger Damery, then a royal favourite, but he died. We've heard before how Dispenser had got hold of the Gower Peninsula in Wales by buying it from the last of the Breus. Dispenser had then forced Elizabeth to swap her own lordship of Usk for the lordship of Gower. Now, Elizabeth wasn't best pleased with this, because Usk was far more valuable, hence why Dispenser had forced her into it in the first place. But OK, anything for an easy life, at least she did get something in return. But then Dispenser egged Breus to start a legal action to take Gower back off her, which he managed to do, and then promptly granted the land to the dispensers. The abuse of the legal process itself is outrageous enough, but it hides a catalogue of intimidation. So in March 1322, Elizabeth was captured at her castle at Usk, which, by the way, I've recommended before as a very cute place to visit. It's a very attractive ruin. Anyway, then at the end of 1322, she was summoned to see the king at York, and forced by Edward to promise that she wouldn't remarry or grant any of her lands away. This pressure put on Elizabeth is doubly interesting when you reflect that Dispenser's own wife was Elizabeth's sister, so clearly family loyalty was firmly in the back of the carriage. A very similar thing happened to the widow of the Earl of Lincoln. Alice de Lacey was also summoned to York before the King and forced to give a lifelong lease of Chepstow in the Marches of Wales to Dispenser. Yet another widow, Elizabeth Common, was imprisoned by the dispensers until 1325, 
when she signed away her rights to Goodrich Castle, again in the Marches of Wales. Another little trick they liked to use was to force people to become indebted to them. So there's a chap called John Hastings who had to acknowledge a whopping £4,000 debt that had absolutely nothing to do with him. You get the picture. This is a pair of utterly ruthless predators. But note also, Edward is implicated in everything that went on and helped and actively supported them. He's in it up to his neck. So you have to ask, how come? How did the dispensers get to have this power over Edward? I mean, after all, the dispensers have been around for quite some time before there was any sign of special favour. Gaveston, I can understand. They spent a lot of their youth together. Gaveston was like an elder brother to him. He was clearly a charismatic bloke and all that. Well, who knows, is my helpful answer. Maybe the answer is simply that this is Edward's character tray, a stunningly weak man who needed to rely on someone, and Dispenser was the man who got to the front of the line after all the other favourites had left. There is, of course, the reputation that's grown up that they were lovers. There's no more evidence for this than there is for Gaveston, but it would be one explanation as to why Edward did his bidding. But it's basically all speculation. We should talk a bit about Isabella, should we not? There's a lot of debate about how well Isabella and Edward got on. And of course it's rather tricky for any historian to put what happens in the end out of their minds. But now most people seem to accept that there's no evidence of any trouble at this stage. And indeed right up to the very end of everything, there's a number of signs that Isabella loved her husband just fine. They produced four children at regular intervals... There's the story about Edward not meeting the King of France because he's too busy in bed with Isabel. But it's pretty much a racing certainty that she grew to detest the dispensers. When she was stranded behind enemy lines in the north, despite clearly being in danger, she wouldn't accept any help from the dispensers. And after 1324, she was forced to watch while the dispensers exercised more and more control over her husband and this control began to extend to her. So in 1324, Dispenser seized her lands in Cornwall and the West, under the pretense of guarding against French invasion. And then even worse, the French members of her household were removed, again, while under the threat of war. And then to cap it all, her children were removed from the household and into the custody of Dispenser's wife, Eleanor de Clare. This is surely reason enough to hate the Dispenser's even if you had no moral objection to what they were doing. My guess is that at some point, a bit like the barons, Isabella decides to give up on Edward. Not because she doesn't necessarily love him, but simply because she can see that he's never going to stand up to the dispensers. Isabella was a princess of France and a queen of England, and was quite convinced of her own importance and dignity, and yet she'd been forced to run for her life three times, and now the dispensers were running her life. It was too much for her to bear, whatever she thought of Edward. In January 1323, one of the rebels who had been captured in the war against Lancaster, but not executed, tried to escape. His name was Maurice de Barclay. When he was interrogated, he revealed that his escape was just one part of a more comprehensive plan to spring the king's erstwhile friend Roger Mortimer from the Tower of London. Meanwhile, letters that Mortimer was smuggling out of the tower were intercepted. 
Now, I doubt it took Dispenser more than the odd nanosecond to come to the decision that Mortimer was less likely to be a threat if his body was spread over the gates of several towns. So word was sent to plan for Mortimer's death in August 1323. We have no idea if Isabella and Mortimer had any contact at this stage. It's theoretically possible that Isabella was already helping him and spying on the Dispensers for Mortimer. Personally, a Hamidutz. But either way, Mortimer wasn't sticking around for any more prison food than he had to. And he had an ace in the hole. The tower's sub-lieutenant, Gerard, had agreed to help him. On the 1st of August, the household at the tower celebrated the Feast of St Peter in Chains. Now, if any of the guards had been watching closely, they might have noticed that Gerard, the sub-lieutenant, didn't seem to be drinking. They might have noticed that everyone else was chucking it back as though there was no tomorrow. And oddly, before too long, the wine seemed to have gone to everybody's head. And then suddenly everyone was asleep. Gerard then took a crowbar and rope ladder to Mortimer's cell. He crowbarred open the door and he and Mortimer and the other occupant of the cell, a bloke called Richard of Monmouth, ran to the kitchen. The cook was in on the plot too and so pretended not to notice three men climbing up his chimney. Bayek, he might have said, I must do something about those darn pigeons. The rope ladder was unfurled and used to get over the outer walls, down to the marshy Thames where a small boat and some men were waiting. Then it was over to Greenwich, a hard ride to Portchester on the south coast and over to Normandy. Mortimer had become the second person to escape the tower, and a special prize to any of you out there who can remember who the first was. Mortimer's escape became progressively more of a threat as the relationships with France worsened. In October 1323, a band of armed men hanged a French sergeant from a post bearing the fleur-de-lis at St. Sardos in the land held by Edward in Gascony. It was just exactly the excuse the French king, Charles IV, wanted to put pressure on the English. After all, you can't leave French sergeants hanging around on posts. Where would it end? Charles threatened to invade, and Edward panicked and sparked off a flurry of diplomatic activity to stave off disaster. In 1324, Edward's half-brother, the Earl of Kent, hurried over there but was given the cold shoulder. Then the Earl of Pembroke was sent over because he was a Lusignan with plenty of contacts, but he was no use either. All he did was go and die on the way. And so in August 1324, Charles IV invaded Gascony, which is what he'd wanted to do all along anyway. Although some soldiers did arrive in Gascony from England, Edward had no intention of going to war if he could avoid it, which, given his track record, was probably a good idea. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But despite a truce being agreed, it wasn't going well. So some bright spark hit on a great idea. Hey, why not send Isabella? Surely as sister to the King of France, she'd be able to talk Big Brother around to her point of view. So everyone agreed to send Isabella. Isabella was out of there like a rat up a drain. I'd like to bet if she could, she'd have hitched up her skirts and run like a hare. Even the chronicler of the life of Edward II said... The Queen departed very joyfully, happy with a twofold joy, pleased to visit her native land and her relatives, pleased to leave the company of some she did not like. Certainly she did not like Hugh. Consequently, many think she will not return until Hugh Despencher is wholly removed from the King's side. Edward proceeded to play his hand with impressive ineptitude. Quite clearly, he had no idea how much he'd upset his wife. So initially, Isabella actually, though, did a reasonable job. And as long as Edward came over to France and did homage to the French king for Gascony, everything would be okay, basically. And Edward even set off. But then he and Hugh got cold feet. Maybe the Spencer didn't like the thought of being alone in England with Edward away, while he was back in England, surrounded by angry widows. So what they did was to arrange for Edward's son, Edward, the future Edward III, to be made Duke of Aquitaine and go and do homage instead. And so, over the channel he hopped, placed his hands in the hands of the French king, and everything seemed to be okay. Everyone certainly breathed a sigh of relief. Disaster had been averted. Edward could kick back and relax, threaten a few more defenceless widows, and wait for his wife and son to arrive back home. But for month after month, the doorbell failed to ring. No loving wife and son appeared on the doorstep loaded down with duty-free. It began slowly to dawn on Edward and Dispenser that maybe they'd boobed. Trying not to panic, they sent a note to the Bishop of Exeter who'd gone over to France with the young prince. The Bishop of Exeter might be described as a muscular Christian since he decided not to mess around with any diplomatic niceties and in front of the court demanded Isabella and her son return to England. His bluntness did achieve at least one objective. He got to find out the truth. Isabella replied, I feel that marriage is a union of a man and a woman, holding fast to the practice of life together, and that someone has come between my husband and is trying to break that bond. I declare that I will not return until that intruder is removed, but, discarding my marriage garment, shall put on the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. Ooh, awkward turtle. Isabella quite clearly roundly hated the Bishop of Exeter as well, and the Bish was forced to escape as quickly as he could to report back to the bewildered Edward. Now, Isabella would have been very much in contact with Edward's greatest enemy by this time, i.e. Roger Mortimer. So one of those big questions is at which point did Isabella and Mortimer hook up? Well, in February 1326... There's a very interesting quote from Isabella in a letter to the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
she described the king as her, quote, beloved sweet lord and friend, and talks about her desire to be with him, but that she was afraid of Hugh, who, again, quote, governs our lord and his entire kingdom. Now we know from Mary MacGregor that it's perfectly possible to be torn between two lovers, and no doubt Isabella would have been feeling like a fool, but it suggests that at this point she's not yet fully hooked up with Mortimer, and it backs up the point that Isabella's revolt was against the dispensers, not Edward. She had simply come to the point where she'd given up hoping that Edward would develop a backbone. It's very difficult not to feel a bit for Edward at this point. The rumours of an impending invasion were growing in England, and Edward wrote increasingly frantic letters to France, particularly to his son. For the young prince, the whole thing must have been an absolute nightmare of truly heroic proportions. Edward the King basically followed a more personal equivalent of the PNS system, i.e. polite, nasty solicitor. Initial polite and slightly bewildered, followed by more nasty letters explaining that his mother was misguided, and then the equivalent of the solicitor's letter telling him that coming back to his father was his duty. None of it worked, of course, though we have absolutely no idea how the 14-year-old Prince Edward felt, except that I would lay money that they were not happy feelings. In all of what follows, for Prince Edward there is no Ruth. His name and person was a key political counter, and they used utterly ruthlessly. The relationship between Isabella and Mortimer is fascinating. Ian Mortimer, an author in whom I find enjoyment and irritation in equal measure, describes the thing as this amazing, fantastic romance. I confess I haven't read Alison Weir's on Isabella, and therefore don't know her take on it, but actually it appears to me almost an affair of convenience as two people accustomed to power, starting a rather desperate adventure. Because Isabella seems to carry a flame for Edward right to the end. There's one very revealing incident in June 1326. Isabella suggests that she might return to Edward. Roger exploded with anger, ignoring the fact that the young prince and others were there watching it all, and declares that rather than let her go back to Edward, he would, quote, kill her with his knife or some other way. Roger, of course, had no alternative to invasion. He couldn't just go back and be forgiven like Isabella could. But whether we're talking about his feeling for himself or his feelings for Isabella, the emotions are strong and raw. One other thing worth mentioning. When Isabella died, she chose to be buried in her wedding clothes and had Edward's embalmed heart placed within her funeral effigy. Really, it seems to me that Isabella found herself forced into a course of action by hatred of the dispensers. And once on the roller coaster with Mortimer, it was impossible to climb off. Again, Lord knows what young Prince Edward thought of it all. By and large, Edward treated his mother with honour later in life, so he attempted to think that he must have looked at the violence of Roger's emotions with some horror. Anyway, enough mindless speculation. As to the adventure, Isabella and Roger were soon actively plotting the next step. Although they were able to base themselves at the French court, they needed more active help, and that was to come from a small country on the northern border of France, now in modern Belgium, Hainault. The fee for helping gain the throne was marriage, and the young prince and Philippa of Hainault were duly betrothed in August 1326. Now that doesn't sound like the best start for marriage. Look son, marry Philippa so that I can give your dad a kicking, would you? 
but in fact it turned out to be a remarkably successful one, so you never can tell. And a month later, Mortimer and Isabella were ready to sail. Count William of Hainault had gathered 95 warships, and in September 1326 an army sailed that was probably around 1,500 men. Now in comparison to the army that Edward should be able to raise, we're back to a discussion of pimples and backsides. It's pretty desperate stuff. They arrived in Suffolk and set up stall. It's interesting and unsurprising, I guess, that there's no mention at all at this point of Mortimer. It's all the Queen and the Prince. The idea of the Queen and her lover coming back to attack the lawful King of England was not a vote winner in medieval times. Few would have gasped with admiration at the power of love. Also, the target of Isabella and Prince Edward's propaganda is most definitely not the King. It's the dispensers. There's no talk whatsoever of deposing the King, good Lord no. From their side, Dispenser and Edward demanded the local sheriffs raise their men, declared Mortimer a traitor and put a £1,000 bounty on his head, and then waited for the local sheriffs to crush the invasion. It all falls to pieces for them remarkably quickly. I mean, really. First of all, Henry of Lancaster, the executed Thomas's younger brother, nephew to King Henry III, of course, raised an army in Leicester, stole Dispenser's treasure there, and marched to join Isabella. The Earl of Norfolk, Edward II's half-brother, deserted him and joined Isabella. Now, a local sheriff response wouldn't have been enough to crush the rebellion anyway. Not, as it happens, that there was any hope of that anyway. Of the 2,000 men summoned by the local sheriff, precisely 55 turned up. In London, all was turmoil and confusion. The army summoned by Edward failed to appear, and when he asked the Londoners for confirmation of their loyalty, there was a lot of foot-shuffling and tooth-sucking. So Dispenser and Edward ran for it on the 2nd of October, heading west to the centre of Dispenser's lands in the marches, giving orders for levies to appear at new locations along the way. Then an open letter arrived in London from Isabella, and it all got a bit ugly. The Londoners rose in revolt. John Le Marshal, a close ally of Dispenser, was dragged out of his house and beheaded. Remember our Bishop of Exeter, who tried to drag Isabella back to England? while well, he was caught in St Paul's Cathedral, where he'd gone for sanctuary. He was badly beaten, and then had his head sawn off with a bread knife, ladies and gentlemen, a bread knife. That has got to hurt. Meanwhile, it just wasn't happening for Edward and the dispensers. The elder dispenser was given the job of defending Bristol, while Edward and the younger went further west to the great castle of Chepstow, where they hoped an army would appear. It did not. Everyone's diaries appeared to be full. Could Edward please come back next year? It's a pathetic image. Surrounded by an ever-decreasing household and barrels of silver pennies, Hugh and Edward cast desperately around for escape or support. Nothing was going their way. On the 20th of October, they sailed out to sea, probably heading for Ireland. And if they'd reached it... Who knows what would have happened? But not even the wind was on their side, and it blew them back to Wales. Finally, by the 28th of October, Edward and Hugh holed up in the massive fortress of Caerphilly, sent out demands for all the forces of South and West Wales, and hoped. By the 18th of October, Isabella had arrived at Bristol, and a paltry eight days later it had fallen, and Dispenser Senior was taken. A proclamation was made that the king had now left the building. 
or at least he'd left England with a bunch of traitors and baddies, and so now his son was the boss, still acting in Edward II's name, and a parliament was summoned for the 14th of December. And meanwhile, on the 27th of October, the elder dispenser was called before a number of judges, including all the royal guys, the Earl of Lancaster, Kent and Norfolk. His trial was modelled on Thomas of Lancaster's. He was not allowed to speak. Isabella apparently argued that he should be spared, like that was ever going to happen. He was hanged, drawn and quartered on the public gallows at Bristol, and the bloodletting had begun. Edward and Hugh were running around like rats in a trap. For some unaccountable reason, they left Caffilly with their 26 barrels of silver. From Neath, he tried to send the abbot to go and talk to his, quote, most beloved consort, but we don't know if it arrived. Then he probably got wind of the fact that he was being hunted by a special group of knights and tried to get back to Caffilly via some mountain passes. But his time had run out and on a stormy night, a group of Welshmen captured him and betrayed him to his enemies. The place he was taken became known as Pant y Brad, or the Vale of Treachery, with apologies for my Welsh accent. You might like to know that I tried to find some pictures of Pant y Brad, which is on the map. But when I googled it, all I could find was lots of attractive women in underwear. Edward was then taken to Monmouth Castle, where he was asked to hand over the Great Seal. Now, we've not really talked about the Great Seal. First of all, let's get one possible cause of confusion cleared up right away. It's not a large aquatic mammal. No, it's the big stamp, if you like, bearing the royal logo used to signal royal approval of any government acts. Great seals had started with Edward the Confessor, and each king created their own new one. So when Edward II reluctantly handed over the Great Seal to Sir William Blount and Henry of Lancaster, this was a solemn handing over of royal authority to his son and to the new regime. The final bloodletting now took place. The Earl of Arundel, closely associated with the regime, was beheaded on the 17th of November. The Chancellor, Robert Baldock, as a cleric, couldn't be executed, so they threw him into prison, where he died a few months later. And the younger dispenser had the book thrown at him, of course. A long litany of crimes was read out, he wasn't able to speak, he was hanged, drawn and quartered, you know the rest. There was a nice report that he bore his execution, quote, with patience, a lovely word. An image appears of poor old Hugh being presented with his genitals, and responding by looking in irritation at his watch. Edward was taken to Kenilworth Castle. He left behind him in Wales an increasing scattering of personal possessions, discarded as he fled with growing desperation. Interestingly, one of the things he dropped, and had clearly had close to him until very near to the end, was found in the 1830s near Neath, and it's the original document recording his betrothal to Isabella in 1303, which is somehow poignant. So everyone, this seems like a handy place to stop. Next time, we'll look at Isabella and Mortimer's regime. My thanks to everyone who comments on the websites or iTunes or joins the Facebook group. My special thanks to Bill for his donation. And indeed, thanks to all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>